Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcast listeners, Al Martin here, Making Data Simple. You found your way back. I appreciate it. Our topic category today is like around AI, startup leadership, venture capital. My guest is Slater Viktorov. He is the founder and CTO at Intico. And this is an enterprise AI solution for unstructured content with a focus on document understanding and process automation. Let me give you a little bit more, and then I'll turn it over to, to my good friend Slater. Enterprise AI solution for unstructured content. This is the, the Intico, the, the, the business we're talking about. He has been building machine learning solutions for startups, governments, and Fortune 100 companies for what, seven years, eight years. We'll let him uh, correct us as we go. Frequent speaker, so we're in for a treat. This is the what we're going to dive into. Uh, the, the claim is his framework requires a thousand times less data than traditional machine learning techniques. And they regularly beat the likes of AWS, Google, and Microsoft. Indico <laughs> recently announced a Series B raise. Let me allow you to introduce yourself. That was great. That's exactly right. I think it, it was seven years when I wrote that, and it is eight years now you know, something along that, you know, as, as long as I've done anything in my, you know, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's just tons of fun. You know, I'm, I'm an AI guy. I, I used to be the CEO. I'm the CTO today. And I just get to build these amazing systems all day, every day. And, you know, I'd love to talk more about exactly how we do it. Why'd you go from CEO to CTO? A lot of it was a change in business model. So we used to be a developer-centered company. You know, it was an API model. We were building stuff like Alchemy API. We shifted to uh, enterprise B2B. And, you know, frankly, the CEO of a developer tool makes a lot of sense for the CTO of an enterprise software company. Uh, so it was a really reasonable transition to make. And we sort of did it in conjunction with that pivot and brought uh, sort of a CEO that had some real experience on the enterprise software side in. So how long has Intico been around? A little over eight years. You know, we were founded in October of 2013. Uh, you know, I was working on it before then, but that was when the official incorporation documents were filed. Did you have other startups before this, or is this the one you're all in on? Side projects, I think I would say. When I uh, started Indico, I think I thought very much that it was, you know, the latest in a long line of, uh, of attempts. But, you know, this was the first thing that I really kind of committed to well, so you've already surrounded Series A, you're already in Series B, so people are paying attention, right? It's been really, really amazing. You know, I think it's it's one of those things where we've always had a history of really pushing the envelope uh, from a technological perspective. People talk about large-scale language modeling today. We pushed our first large-scale language model into production in 2015. Back then, no one had any idea what we were doing. People didn't even have the, the language to discuss, you know, the technology that we were differentiated from, right? Deep learning was so new. So the idea of coming out there and saying, we're built on transfer learning, this new, better version of deep learning that solves all these problems, it was really, really tough. So it's been actually incredible to see that over the course of the last five years, it's gone from, I have no idea what you're talking about, this is not even a thing, to now it's just another early, exciting, high-growth industry. People get it now. You know, when I talk about transfer learning and, you know, learning with small amounts of data and large-scale language modeling, like people know what those things are today. And, you know, we've continued to, to push the envelope and go beyond that. It's been an amazing change, you know, to see people actually, you know, understand our technology now. 
So if you could hit it again, I kind of described what Indico does, but just an overall summary of uh, like, if, if I'm the venture capitalist here, what are you pitching to me? So the, the problem is unstructured data, and that is text, image, audio, documents, video, everything that doesn't fit neatly into columns and rows. Now, when you look at enterprise software really broadly, when you look at analytics applications, when you look at BI tools, right, when you look at these low-code environments, they were very much made assuming that you've got this beautiful structured data. For the longest time, you could only approach unstructured data in these extraordinarily expensive, you know, $10 million initiatives that would solve, you know, one very narrow document type. You know, the technology was just not there. You had to do it in an incredibly bespoke way. Modern technology and sort of what Indico can then provide actually totally upends that notion. You can train these extremely high accuracy models with dramatically smaller amounts of data. So you can, as an individual, make, you know, a state-of-the-art invoice model in a couple of days with a couple of hundred examples. And, you know, that's fundamentally what we're offering is the platform that allows you to build effectively any use case around unstructured data uh, that you're looking for. But there are many tools out there that do handle unstructured data. What's your differentiation in the equation you just laid out? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the key piece, right, when you talk about the historic way that you deal with unstructured data, right, they're these very narrow, extremely bespoke pieces. So you'll have, for instance, someone that can handle structured forms where you happen to know the X, Y location ahead of time. You know, that's a particular area functionality. Or you'll have a company that provides OCR. For any application, OCR is 10% of the problem. You know, you'll have companies out there that offer computer vision classification, but also in all of these cases, right, what they're fundamentally providing is these pre-trained models. So I provide to you an invoice processing model. If you want to customize it for your own data, if you want to look at invoices differently than the way I have laid out invoices, you simply can't do that. People now can buy a, a very small number of products that do deal with specific slices of the unstructured problem. That's true. They're incredibly expensive, very ineffective. That's why the total cost of ownership of these is kind of so crazy, right? So we dramatically reduce that total cost of ownership and we make it so that to build out sort of a new use case, uh, you know, you're not spending $10 million. You know, this is something that you can do again as an individual and you can build 150 use cases, right, on your own. Why um, the emphasis on the small amount of data? I mean, you, usually uh, we're talking about machine learning, et cetera, and the size of the data actually lends to more uh, statistical accuracy. Is that what I want to say in terms of, you know, putting a ton of data in so that you can get the, uh, well, let me put it this way. Usually we're talking about machine learning tactics that can handle more data than rather than less so that they're, they're more accurate in detail. I don't think that's correct. You know, I don't think there's any ML model on the planet that is, you know, limited in the amount of data that it can consume. We are only limited in the amount of data that we can provide. And the thing that people don't realize is that the amount of data that you require for statistical significance is dramatically different than the amount of data that is required by an actual ML model. That's where the 200 data point requirement as sort of the floor comes, right? Is that's what you need approximately. You know, there's asterisks for any particular use case to get a statistically valid sample. Now, regardless of the size of the universe of data, right, and this is, you know, an important, very foundational finding in statistics, the size of data sample you need does not change. That represents a distribution to a particular precision, regardless of the size of the overall population. Your technology uniquely outlines the minimal amount of data that you would need to drive the high accuracy of modeling that you're trying to get to. Does that make sense? Uh, 
The way that I would uh, typically frame the usual trade-off, right? And I think the question is like how we get around the usual trade-off. What makes this so different? And, and let's just use a Twitter sentiment as an example. It's a reasonable one. If I have a model and I want to teach it to tell the difference between positive and negative tweets, uh, not because this is a useful use case, just because it's an easy one to think about, right? But I want to tell the difference between positive and negative tweets. There are a couple of different ways I can approach this, but the traditional machine learning way is to say, I'm going to label just a huge river of these tweets, right, for positive and negative. And then I'm going to present that to sort of a very naive goal and have it eventually learn the statistical patterns that say, this is what makes it positive. This is what makes it negative. They assume you're starting from zero. The analogy here is that that model has no basic understanding. It does not speak English. So the analogy I always give here, right, is imagine two tasks. Imagine one where you've already learned Twitter sentiment analysis. And let's say it's in a tricky domain. So it's not something that you would know as a human immediately. Say it's for a cancer drug where someone might write something like, this was so great. I hardly threw up at all. Uh, if you didn't know what domain that was, you might think that's actually negative. If it's burrito place, right, that's actually negative. For a chemotherapy drug, right, that actually is like a glowingly positive review. So you've got to learn a little bit. So you need some sample of data to really make sure that you've got it right. You know, So that's kind of the 200 examples. Now, imagine for a second that you had to do that same process, right? You had to learn that same new concept of sentiment for a particular domain. But this time, all of the tweets were in Chinese. And suddenly think, OK, how many data samples would you need to figure that out? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as humans, we're pretty smart. We're pretty good pattern matchers. So at a certain point, right, you'd eventually see enough tweets if you saw, okay, this one's positive, this one's negative. You could eventually figure it out. But you're talking hundreds of thousands of tweets because you don't just have to learn what's positive and what's negative to me. You have to learn Chinese. That's the analogy that I use very much here. So the idea is that what we're doing is showing up with models that already have basic knowledge. Importantly, it is basic foundational knowledge. I say, you know, it's not a doctor. It's not a lawyer. It just speaks English. But because it speaks English, that allows it to learn these downstream tasks with radically less data than is typically required. In fact, it means that you are bound not by you know, the amount of data or the data hungriness, especially of these modern models. You are bound by the statistical efficacy of that technique, which, you know, there is absolutely a limit there, right? Like you cannot test something appropriately with 30 data points, right? And I don't care how well it works. At some point, you're going to hit, like you say, statistical irrelevancy. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, like, for instance, in a classification task, I think this is the most uh, common case, right, is that if you take a random sample of 200 data points and you've got a class that is so rare that it only occurs one in a thousand times, well, that's actually a place where you change what you need for statistical validity, right? You, you actually need a base level of number of observations of that. So, and, and that's where things actually start to get a little bit tricky, where you've got these rare classes, where you've got really spread distributions, where you have to think, uh, you know, very differently about how you do your sampling. What use cases is Indico most directly involved with? I mean, what's your themes? Yeah, I mean, document processing is, you know, obviously huge for us. That's a really big set of use cases today. I would say we tend to orient ourselves around three main pillars. So that's automation analytics and applications. So automation, again, I think that makes sense. We'll you know, probably talk intelligent automation a little bit, but that's where you've got someone processing contracts, you've got someone processing titles or deed documents, any time where you've got some unstructured document that you need to turn into a structured payload. Uh, and you've got people doing that and you want to do it more effectively, you know, more accurately, more quickly. 
analytics, I think that that's, you know, kind of very straightforward. You've got some text, right? You've got some documents. You want to understand what's in there and you want to do it in kind of a way that's specific to your organization. You've pretty much covered everything though, haven't you, with automation analytics and document processing? (laughs) The important thing is that those are the application areas. We're not building those three things. We don't have an RPA product is that we are generating inputs for RPA products. You're absolutely right. We could not build those three things. It's just that those are the areas that we plug into and sort of the vendors that we've got really rich partnerships with uh, sort of downstream systems. How did you get to that point though? I mean, I, that's the reason I ask is because it's pretty broad to you to have models to, to kick off. I mean, that's, you know, so you've got to have some kind of use cases within each one of those areas that are somewhat consistent maybe. Yes, but the consistency that's really important to recognize is the unstructured data aspect. And there are, you know, a massive amount of the workflow for any, you know, PDF centered workflow is going to look really, really similar. You know, you're going to have to make some classification and extraction models, right? You're going to have to chain them together. You're going to have to do OCR, right? You're going to have to make a data pipeline upstream and downstream. And, you know, there's also places to cut out, you know, in case you need to do anything custom. But that really is the center for us, is that anytime you've got unstructured data that you want to turn into structured data. And the thing is just that the, the reason that we talk about automation, analytics, and applications is just that those are the primary areas where structured data has been consumed for the past 20 years. Makes sense. Well, 80% or more enterprise data tends to be unstructured these days. 2% of it is actually analyzed, you know, compared to, you know, the structured stuff is 99% analyzed yeah, at this yeah. point, right? Absolutely. What industries? I mean, I, I got to believe you cross Ooh. industries within automation, analytics, document processing, et cetera. Theoretically, like the technology is uh, vertical agnostic. We do specifically focus our go-to-market in BFSI, so banking, financial services, and insurance. I mean, you have to choose. You know, you can't boil the ocean to your point. Like you've got to winnow it down in some way, shape, or form. And that's the primary thing that we've chosen. It includes some ancillary pieces like, you know, commercial banking and, you know, home equity loans, but those are all, you know, very much under that same banner. So can you talk to how this all is put together? I mean, like there's unstructured. So are you using no, no SQL databases to help you out? Are you using a dupe? Are you using pause there? And it sounds like you've got a great question. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is a great case where people actually don't usually recognize how different these unstructured data workflows have to be from normal workflows because the data flows are actually very, very different. So something like Hadoop, for instance, because you're really constrained in the types of algorithms that you can run, we actually can't use uh, Hadoop, which is this huge hassle. So what we've had to do actually is build kind of this custom messaging layer where you know, you make very heavy use of these binary blob stores because at the end of the day, that becomes a really key component, you know, and it's not something that you can easily turn into a structured database record. One thing that's really helpful, though, is, uh, you know, having JSON be in Postgres to manage sort of the, the meta motion of all of these documents. Combining that with a more traditional document store like S3, right, and having this notion of being really careful about when you actually retrieve a document, how you represent metadata on top of that document. Uh, And and I mean document in the very broad sense, right? This can be literally a PDF. It can also be an image or text, right? Or a video or something like that. Then really importantly, understanding how you keep your data segmented across all of these different uh, sort of data types and modalities, right? So if I'm a customer, let's say I'll come and I say, all right, got a data lake. 
I've got a ton of uh, visuals in Hadoop. I've got text. I've got pretty much any amount of unstructured data. I'm looking for you to help me with my insurance claims around financial fraud. I don't know. How can you help me? Yeah. So let's just take insurance claims. You know, that, that's a great example. So typically the way that that's going to work is that, you know, the, the claim itself is going to be some wad of unstructured data. Uh, and the first thing that you're probably going to have to do is split it apart into its component pieces. Probably going to be, uh, let's just say auto claims, because, you know, folks can kind of imagine that. You're going to have pictures of the car that was damaged. You're going to have the quote from the mechanic saying how much it's going to cost. You're going to have a copy of your policy and, you know, five different things that you had to initial and, and all this nonsense. Mm -hmm. So first thing you're going to have to do is split it apart. You know, in all things in our platform, you just start, you get you your collection of 200 document bundles in this case. So you want to get 200 insurance claims. Big insurance company, right? That's absolutely nothing. You know, they see that in a minute or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you load those in and at first you say, okay, here's how I want to split these apart. Here are the component pieces. And let's just take the, the quote. And let's say that, uh, you know, your, your business is kind of determined, okay, when we look at a quote, here are the 20 fields that we really care about that we're going to use, say, for that downstream fraud analysis. And so we're not going to do the fraud analysis, but the idea is we're going to give you sort of the consistent data surface that you can, you can kind of run through. So you load them in, you say, all right, here's what I want to extract. Here are the correct things. And, you know, you can do that for each of the document types. That can be, it can, you know, it can be text. It can be something out of a table. It can be an image. It can be, you know, again, whatever you want to extract. Then you can kind of configure in production, hey, how much of this do I want to be human in the loop? Does it have to be 100% accurate? Do I want for I review? You know, all, all that goodness. What part of your product does that? Which one is, what part is manual? So they're doing all of the like labeling and processing in the product itself. So the idea is that Indico is then sort of responsible for all of the claims processing. And Indico provides what that uh, you know, final interface is going to be. There's a huge amount of configurability. It, it's still all you know, within the product, but in terms of what you're having humans do, what you have the machine do, in practice, it's always going to be some combination of the two. That's really the way that we position, is it lets users create that really clean data interface. So let me make sure I'm clear. If you work with Indico, you mm -hmm. come in, you'd give them some kind of a workshop or guidance, I presume. We need to look at the quotes first. So you get the quotes, you run it through your system. I don't know if you throw it in a database or not, or do you clean it up? Is there any clean? It all happens automatically. So the user does not have to think about it at all. They just load it in. But yeah, there, there's a bunch of complicated stuff happening on the back end for sure. Load it in. And then once you get it in, are you making it structured or semi-structured at that point? Or are you keeping it unstructured? Keeping it unstructured. Once it's loaded in, it is still unstructured. One of the things that we recognize really critically, there is no one correct way to structure a document. Different people want different information. Different people group the information differently. That's not a limitation of AI. It's just a fundamentally, you know, there are different use cases. You know, Geico and State Farm are going to have two different fraud processes. And they should have two different fraud processes. There's no world where they use the same fraud process. Mm -hmm. right? What's the connection then? You know, typically, if you have structured data, it makes it much more easy for me. Exactly. To That's why you suggest, hey, but like the key difference here is unstructured. So what are you doing differently? Then? How do you make that leap? On the technology side, right, it's obviously a lot of deep learning tech. But the key thing is that you load the document in and you force them to capture the information they want in a structured way. They're doing this often today. If you think about, you know, data entry applications, that's a pretty 
common thing, or even just, you know, opening up Excel and trying to type something into a couple of consistent columns. But you do that within our product. And then by doing that within our product, every time you do that, every time you capture that structured information, we've got this AI in the background that is learning a little bit about your process. It's understanding a little bit more and a little bit more. And as you go through, it will automatically sort of pop up and say, okay, I understand what you're trying to do. Let me start to help now. And it kind of takes on a progressively larger and larger portion of the load as time goes on. So, but let me make sure it's clear. This is where I get a little confused. So yeah. you're throwing it in unstructured, you're keeping yes. it unstructured, but the way the data is entered, there is some structure to it to allow the machine learning models to learn as you go. Yeah. So the idea is that the user is mapping the unstructured to the structure, and then the AI is learning to do that unstructured to structured mapping on its own. And then you could take different elements like, you know, like you went through the example that we provided fraud, you could do uh, claims, you could do quotes, you could, uh, anyway. Uh, exactly. And, and it's just, you know, at any time where you've got an unstructured river of data coming in that's highly variable and you want this really clean structured output. And th there's a lot of cases where you've got that. And, you know, that's kind of where our responsibilities start. As an Indico, as a company, how much are, are, is the product handling? How much do you provide services for? to make the connections that you're mentioning and how much is on the customer? Yeah, so the key is that a huge amount of it is product oriented, right? I think most folks in the space, that's the other piece, very, very services oriented. I think most folks, again, you know, like Deloitte will show up and solve your invoice problem for $10 million. They've been doing that for 20 years and they'll probably continue to do it, well, hopefully not for too much longer. We offer almost zero services. We do offer a very small amount of services. Basically, we think that for success in automation and unstructured data broadly, you need kind of a subject matter expert, a process owner, and a software architect, and you know potentially a data science persona as well. So you kind of need those four folks in place. The organizations all have those four folks. Obviously, they need to to do things productively. But sometimes, you know, they need a little help getting there. Sometimes they need us as a stopgap for a couple of months as they're getting their, you know, automation practice set up or something along those lines. So we do do some stopgap uh, services there. The product makes things radically easier for the customer. The customer puts, you know, then has control over everything that they the customer then becomes self-sufficient really is the idea, you know, so the customer then uses the product to do, you know, 100% of what they do. And, you know, we want to keep making the product better and better to make things easier and easier for the customer. But, you know, it's 90% the customer using our product to do their own stuff and 10% us either doing stopgap services or just, you know, consulting with them when they run into some issues. So let me see if I can summarize it. So basically identify the use case around structure one way or another. I mean, it could be different industries, but around structured data, you refine or confine, whatever you want to say, the use case. You bring in four personas. I presume they do some training on the product. Yeah, there's a workshop usually. Yeah, there's a workshop they do. And then it's a kind of a, I don't know if this is the right term, but it's a load and go. But yeah, that, that's exactly the idea, right? And, you know, it, it never goes so easy the first time around. So often we'll, you know, like we'll be in the co-pilot seat as we build out the first use case or we do like a, a POC that we can hand over to them that they can learn from. But yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly the idea. You know, I think we're always working on making our, our training better so it can be hands-off, totally self-directed. How long does this usually take, though? I mean, because I think the reality of it is you kind of were alluding to it there. You know, it's going to take more training. I mean, like, Particularly if you come into IBM, we've got so many three-letter acronyms, you know, you can throw off a model immediately. So I got to believe it's feedback loop continues there on afterward. It certainly does. I think that one of the things that's really powerful about our product is that 
an individual use case actually gets into production pretty quickly. So I would say that, you know, you can usually get a, a functional model that is giving you a sense that like, yeah, you know, this is going where we want it to at the end of the first day. You can get something that's like good enough to demo to management at the end of the first week. And then, yeah, when you're talking about, you know, actually getting this thing connected to your enterprise systems, you know, there's contracting and kind of a lot of steps before that, but you're still talking, you know, three months probably end to end, which, you know, in enterprise sales is lightning fast. One of the things that's really amazing though, is that that process gets faster and faster for each successive use case. And you actually start to be able to parallelize them really effectively because it's actually so much faster to build uh, sort of the initial models out where the AI almost becomes the easy part. And actually the harder part is then getting through the approvals and actually getting everything plugged in for production. How do you keep the models from becoming stale? I mean, you probably know this better than anybody. Oh yeah. You throw a lot into production and they say that, you know, 50% of the models usually go stale before you even get value out of them. Success rates that we see, and, and importantly, success rates rated by like, do they deliver ongoing production value? Because I think that's really what success is. It's something like 11% for the industry. See, there you go. Our success rate is 97%. The whole reason for that actually is that we've gone into it with that assumption is that we actually don't view models as these static things. And, and it probably comes across a little bit when I started describing the process, right? As you start labeling, it comes to life and it assists in a configurable way. So that's actually also how we approach this question of staleness. So we're really big fans of something that, uh, you know, we call staggered loop learning, you know, as an alternative to closed loop, because in BFSI or right, in any regulated industry, closed loop learning is the last thing you want, right? It's, it's a nightmare from, from almost every direction. So the idea of staggered loop is that as you're going through and processing documents live, that information is actually getting incorporated not into the production model, but into a staging model. And then you can review that at your leisure, right? And decide, okay, now, you know, this is, you know, captured some real gains for it. Now we've decided we want to flip this into production really varies on the use case. You know, there's folks that do that every month. Uh, there's folks that might do that every other year. But, you know, you have all the tools to kind of figure out when you actually need to push the change. When do you hand that over to the customer or do you? Is it a relationship that does go on forever? They're going to have use from the Indico product forever. One of the things that we really realized is that, and, and it's a big part of this, like static models don't deliver significant value is sort of our view. It's not that everything they have to do has to be within the Indico platform. We're super flexible in terms of, you know, everything's API accessible. You can export the stuff from the platform, whatever. But as you're dealing with unstructured data, this organic, ever-changing nature of it, not even to mention the fact that research advances at such an insane clip that, you know, keeping on top of it is, you know, a challenge in and of itself. I think that just like people have databases kind of forever into the future, right? You're never going to stop doing your database because this is a new piece of functionality that you now have to support, right? And I think I view it very much the same way is that where we see our customers, you know, they get hooked on the value they get from, you know, unstructured data. You know, they see it as these competitive advantages and they get tremendous value out of the first two or three use cases, but they also have 150 use cases. So what you're saying there is, I get it. The product continues. There's no need for services. You enable the customers to take that and those personas that we talked about earlier to take this and, and go where they want to go with it over time, using your product and continue to leverage that said product. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, we're not going to force anyone to, to do anything, right? Like, theoretically, you can, like, cut out when you like. But, uh, yeah, as, as you've recognized, like, yeah, there's, there's a really but big So let me, let me double click then. Are they, uh, I mean, are this in, like, Python notebooks that they can maintain? I mean, how does that work? It's a Kubernetes orchestrated uh, microservices architecture. So the idea yeah. is there's, you know, a Docker registry that they're pulling from. There's a lot of flexibility they've got also in terms of the deployment model they opt for. Some of our customers want to do on-premise and they actually manage the containers themselves and they buy the hardware themselves. Some customers, they're much happier to just have us run as a managed service. And we just say, hey, you know, you're going to have APIs and you're going to have the UI and, you know, that's what you'll access things through. And then I think the the other pieces, obviously, that are really key there is just the the accessibility and the hackability. So yeah, there are many areas where you can inject Python code straight in. Important cores of our code are even open source. So, you know, we've got something called the Solutions Toolkit, for instance, that it relies really heavily. It's hard to use effectively if you don't have Indico or some effective stand-in product for it. It is open source and, you know, we want to let people kind of have that even if they decide, you know, not so what's the business model? Is the business model mostly around SaaS managed services? That's the right way to think about it, you know, is that uh, it's seats and capacity and, you know, some asterisks on top of that. But that's that's the approximate model. We're primarily running managed services. We also do support on-premise. Uh, we don't have any, you know, true SaaS, SaaS customers. Like we... Uh, we deal with pretty sensitive data, and so customers tend to be, be pretty uncomfortable with the idea of a true multi-tenant SaaS. How many customers, what percentage of your customer base is taking your technology, as you said earlier, and just you know taking it and said, all right, I got it. They're still using the product. They're pushing the product, but they're doing it independently. Is that all of them? Is it 50% or most oh, of them? Yeah. No, I mean, they, they all work independently. I think that they work independently in different ways. Some of them are still in the onboarding phase, right? So, you know, maybe it's 80, 90% of them because some of them are still kind of coming on board, but they have different ways that they use us, right? There's some people that really just embrace us as a full platform and they're just building use cases on their own. And, you know, they'll pop in from time to time to consult with us. And, and that's about it. There's also folks that are just like data science groups that purely see us as like, labeling support and model management, right? And compute management. Uh, and, and we basically never hear from those guys. They're like, nope, like we got it. We don't want any upgrades. It's perfect the way it is. And then we've also got folks that are, are usually sort of consuming some downstream results. Like, you know, there's been some application built, right? Something along those lines. Kind of hear if they've got a feature ask or something along those lines. But again, they tend to be, we tend to set all of these projects up in such a way that they are, uh, self-sustaining. And now there's often really good automation COEs that are sort of well and responsible for, you know, helping us find new use cases across the business and sort of helping our footprint, you know, sort of grow with our customers over time. Do you have, uh, what about bias detection? One is the way in which we have decided to tackle these use cases. You know, I'm talking about unstructured to structured. Yes, it, it is broad, right? But one of the things that you might not recognize it is removed from that when we were talking about the fraud example, for instance, is we are not making the decision as to whether or not uh, something is fraudulent. We've kind of taken a, a stand that, you know, that final end goal decisioning, A, I don't particularly believe that it's a good fit for ML systems, uh, period. But, you know, I'll sort of leave it there. We don't do it. Like, we will not do that. So we do draw sort of an important line in the sand there. Then also when it comes to bias detection, we see the problem as being very centered around uh, dataset quality, dataset curation, understanding what parts of the data are well mapped and what parts are not. 
we've got a couple of modules that are about labeling data, but actually we've got just as much of the product that is more about introspecting the data that you have labeled, right? What have you covered? What have you not? What has been consistent? What has been inconsistent? And, and, you know, we always find that even for the most kind of consistent, you know, theoretically, you know, boring processes, right? There are these disagreements, right? And you have people that might, you know, miss certain kinds of names more than other kinds of names, but surface it, define truth, you know, like, and really just force people to set process guidelines and then follow those process guidelines. So speaking of data, and you kind of talked about this before early on in the the podcast here, but you, you specifically point out a thousand times less data. What makes you say, hey, that's a key element that we want the user base or those considering our product to to look at? Absolutely. So I think the important thing to note here, right, and for the comparison, I think it's really interesting is that we were very early to transfer learning, as I mentioned, right? And, you know, so that's that's what that is a reference to, right? 1,000 times less data than, you know, traditional techniques require. That is transfer learning. And it's something that back when we were founded in 2013, you know, obviously transfer learning as a field has existed for a long time, but absolutely nothing worked in 2013. There were a couple of really interesting sort of breakthrough papers, you know, Xylo and Fergus, I'll absolutely give them credit for their visualizing and understanding convolutional neural nets paper that really got transfer learning in the computer vision space on deep learning working like to an amazing sort of incredible extent. And that was when we really sat up and, and we paid attention because from our perspective, this was the only minus is that deep learning, I think is just the, it's the fundamental idea that humans should not be engineering features. Uh, traditional techniques, right, you know, when you're dealing with unstructured data, you know, text and image and things like that. And that's why they're so expensive is because you've got to do all this manual feature engineering. Humans are very bad at that. And it's an incredibly difficult process. You know, I mean, it, it used to be back in the day that coming up with a single feature for facial detection was, you know, I mean, that's a PhD. So, I mean, this is <laughs> tough, tough, difficult work. And and deep learning is the idea that like, no, you shouldn't do that. Like people are bad at this and let's have the model do it. So, you know, that's why you get these incredible accuracies with these deep learning techniques. But at the time, you know, we're talking AlexNet, we're talking ImageNet, where you got a million examples. And so this we really saw as, you know, this is the fundamental issue with deep learning is that when you're talking about invoices, right, when you're talking about NDAs, there may not be a million distinct NDAs in the world. It's not a question of data access even, let alone all of the problems with data privacy if you start pitching, you know, data blender stuff. Because you can absolutely reclaim training data from models. It's like a known attack. And so that's, you know, really, I think where we hit on the model is that the idea is that rather than relying on us to be the central arbiter of data, by allowing customers to build sufficient models only on their individual amounts of data and actually get these very high quality sort of production, you know, deep learning models. That's really where it came down to. Now, I think that today, you know, if you look at transfer learning, it's sort of gone from a very niche, like, how does this work? Who does it? To, I'd even argue, you know, if you're not effectively using transfer learning today in a deep learning stack, it's like borderline unethical, given how much more radically effective those are than other techniques. You like, you basically can't get traditional ML working uh, nowadays relative to the transfer learning techniques. Certainly you could never, you know, publish a paper on it. It's now at the point where it costs, you know, a million dollars if you want to try to recreate that foundation for yourself. It's something that I continue to think of as being an incredibly powerful notion. I think I I couple it also with this idea of multitask learning, but just the idea that there is shared context between tasks and that you can learn things effectively between tasks. And there is sort of a central understanding that you're advancing as as you're doing that. And, And, you know, we've not 
been able to make models that work like that for very long. It's like a very, very kind of recent, I think, and, and exciting future for the accessibility of these techniques. What do you think the number one aspect is uh, that prevents companies from adopting this type of technology? I think that the biggest issue is inflated expectations, frankly. I think that a lot of people show up with the notion that AI is going to be this magic genie and just everything is going to be 100% automated on day one. And when you walk in with that expectation and you haven't really uh, bothered to do your research correctly, you're never going to get to success. And I think that you've got on the one hand, you know, many folks that are kind of holding up that notion, like you can do absolutely anything, right? Everything is possible. You don't need any data. We'll kind of figure it out. They're just selling a lot of smoke and mirrors and they're breeding a lot of distrust in the industry. I think that's our biggest struggle is that, you know, that, that 11% success rate, unacceptable. Well, that's one reason I asked you earlier about, you know, what kind of expectations should a client have in terms of time frame? Because look, we face them here as well. You go in and they're like, hey, this should work in like uh, 30 days. And like, well, hold on, let's take a look at your data. You know, you, you're right, you got to do the feature engineering. You know, usually their data is a mess to begin with, instructed or not, you know, that kind of thing. What expectations do you usually provide to your customer base? The data one is the most important one. Uh, and in fact, we've even gone to the point where we assume that they will have no usable training data. A lot of people waste a lot of time uh, with different assumptions. They're like, oh, we'll find some way to make it work. No, you will waste six months and a million dollars and that's all that's going to happen. You will have to relabel, period. That's just how it works. Uh, so we walk in with that assumption and we basically say like, look, this is not a valuable use case to you until you can get a critical volume of data. And we know that if you can get us 200 representative examples of the thing that you're going to do, you're going to reach success. So that's really where we inject the bar. We find it's a really effective way to just kind of um, smoke people out is that they're not willing to get data if the use case is not important. And importantly, right, people have to be willing to confront the fact that their historical way of tagging this data has probably been really bad uh, and be willing to actually improve things going forward because they're going to have to retag all of that data from scratch. And in every single customer, they're going to find that they haven't been doing it as well historically as they thought they were. So I got what you said, but I mean, it's easier said than done in setting those expectations. So yeah. you got to tell me, how do you balance that? Because if you go in and say, you know, you assume that, hey, everything you've got, you got to start all over. They're going to look at it and say, all right, well, we'll think about it. And I know you want to sell the technology. How do you bridge that gap? What we have found is that you don't do anybody any favors by agreeing to a bad framing. If someone is not willing to approach it in a realistic way with realistic expectations, we will not participate in the process. We find very often by pointing out like, hey, here's why we're not participating. Here's why this is not going to be successful. And in fact, we find that the result of most proof of concepts is no decision. And, and, and we just share that and we're like, look, this is, these are the mistakes that you're making. This is why it's a waste of time for us. Come, you know, we'll come back in two years once you've spent all the money figuring out that's a mistake. Sometimes that's enough for them to recognize that really they ought to change something about the way that they are approaching the problem. That really is, is what it is at the end of the day is that we just have to be really, really dogmatic about it. You know, I think it's, it's one of the reasons that you see such low success rates, right? Is I think that if you try to stretch and do something that's actually not appropriately framed for success. It doesn't matter how far you stretch. It's, it's not going to reach success in production. 
So. I know each use case is completely different, so this is not a fair question. But you know, on average, what can clients expect from the day you walk into the door to the day they have a model in production that's continuing to learn and provide value? Three months is usually a very reasonable expectation for the first model. That's usually where we where we set it. It gets faster after that, and you know, obviously, there's a lot of asterisks around process. And I guess day you walk in the door, I'm defining as like contract signing, not like day we first say okay. hello. Do you have a unique, startling use case that you've worked on this? Just for fun. Oh, one I, I love, I just absolutely love this use case, is trash. So one of our big customers is waste management. Basically, what we can do with them is look at trash. So imagine, so actually, as these waste management trucks go around and they're picking up dumpsters, they have uh, two cameras on each of the trucks. One forward-facing that looks at the dumpsters that they're picking trash up from, right? And one sort of over the top of the carriage that looks at the trash falling down into the containers. And so you can imagine, right, like doing analysis on both of those is actually really key. You know, on the one hand, understanding like, hey, is there trash all over the ground? You know, does this dumpster have stuff overflowing? Is there hazardous waste? And then on the other hand, understanding like, hey, you know, this is a recycling truck. What's going into the back of this? You know, can we catch something before it actually gets integrated with a broader, you know, set of recyclables and spoils them? Stuff along those lines. But, you know, you can imagine all sorts of really interesting uh, trash analytics that you can do on those streams. Makes sense. That is cool. Unique. That's why I'd like to dive down, but I, I get it. I get it. Hey, uh, anything that you wish I would have asked you about Indico or the technology that I didn't, that I failed to do so? Uh, a notion of machine teaching. And it's something that uh, Microsoft has been championing this idea a lot lately. And it's something that we really like where when you look at a lot of the limitations with modern models, the idea goes that the reason often why you see such bad quality uh, in labels is often because the way you've structured the problem is actually not quite correct. And you know, let's use this great example of binary sentiment analysis on tweets. That's not a good problem framing. Is not every tweet is positive or negative, right? It's you know it's sort of this non-deterministic collapse of a much more deterministic upstream system. So machine teaching asks the question of now that we've got this amazing flexibility and can incorporate such disparate signals into sort of singular models, how does this allow us to change the way we think about supervision in ML? And can we uh, create interfaces that are closer to how te uh, humans teach each other than these kind of really rigid, you know, classification targets? So I think that's just a really interesting theme and something that we're, we're thinking a lot about here. Is this a uh, kind of call out to your future? I mean, where Indico may be five years from now? That's one of the key pieces of it for sure, right? I mean, machine teaching, that's one of our, our main kind of future R&D pillars. The other one is multimodal fusion. So this idea that, you know, rather than NLP working on text and computer vision working on image, can you actually fuse those modalities into singular models and reason across those data modalities? Other versions of that that you can imagine. What's your prediction? My prediction, I think that the most useful AI skill in the next five years is actually going to be user experience. I think that that is what is most poised to change kind of radically on the back end of this te new technology is people that are good at building labeling interfaces, people that are good at understanding how you map processes to models. I think if you look at OpenAI's uh, most recent summarization paper, this is a great example of their key breakthrough is actually a different method of supervision. And I think you're going to see more and more and more of that. Where can folks reach you in Indico? 
So you can reach me at slater.website, which I was very lucky to grab. Reach out at uh, Twitter. And Indico is uh, indicodata.ai. All right, fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Look, clearly you're a CTO. I mean, look, you can CEO, but I can tell that you've got the absolutely the technical chops. This is my last two-part question. So you've been the CEO or CTO for, what, eight years? Is that what we said? Yeah, four and four. Four and four. All right, there you go. What have you learned that's been most valuable in that time frame from that from that leadership perspective? And here's the, the, the kicker. It's the second one, if you can remember it. What did you think you know, but it became inaccurate after you, you know, became CEO and down that path? I think the most important thing that I learned is about the role of advice. And I believed initially that you got advice from the person with the best possible credentials, and then you just followed whatever they did. I learned that this is not correct, and that not only are credentials like highly nonlinear, but... If someone knew how to build your business, they would build your business. And yeah. and it's something that I think a lot of people don't recognize is that someone can help, but you always have to make sure that you're the one that understands how execution should happen. And recognize that, you know, if you're starting a company, you know a lot more about it than you might be willing to give yourself credit for. That's great advice. I always say very tactically to your last point is you can go in any, any boardroom but the person with the title doesn't necessarily have the influence. You got to figure out who's sitting at there. That's the first thing I walk in and say, who is the real influencer here? It doesn't matter. It could be anybody. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. 100%. Hey, thank you for being on the podcast today. I I learned a lot. We'll send people your way. I appreciate it. And uh, again, thanks. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. And thanks to all the listeners. Uh, As always, reach me on Al Martin talks data at gmail.com we'll try to get you on or get your subject on meanwhile we will see you on the podcast thank you thanks for listening to the making data simple podcast where we make data fun be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Out.